Hey everybody, it's Eric Torenberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Venture Stories by Village Global. I'm here today with two very special guests, Amjad Massad of Replit and Christina Cassiopa of Vanta. Guys, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Amjad, why don't we start with you? What is Replit? Replit is, at its heart, an interactive programming environment. But we kind of take that to its ultimate conclusion. Not only can you test code, but you can actually write full production applications in, in this interactive environment. You start very easily. You can start with Hello World or what have you. You can start in, in, in basically two seconds, but they can, you can go as deep as you want in terms of creating and building stuff. Yeah. And Christina, you, Angel, invested in Replit. Yep. I believe you passed it to me and I foolishly didn't pursue it because I was outside of my expertise. Is that the story that you were told? Mostly. So I had the advantage of having met Amjad probably four, three, four years prior to that. And so I'd seen kind of a open source side project to evolve into a like fully fledged website that had thousands or tens of thousands of users at that point. And so it, I kind of watched it change over that point. But um, yeah, it was very much kind of an in-browser IDE and programming environment and infrastructure. And so you could just start writing code and running it in yeah. a web browser. And I was at Code Academy prior, so obviously been interested in coding education. And you too, Christina, when you were uh, at USV, I think you wrote a bit about coding education. What sort of informed your thesis or interest there? I came at it very personally in that I don't have a academic CS background, but actually at some point when I was at USV and Venture, decided that, you know, in many ways Venture is great, but I really wanted to go build things on the internet um, and make things. And in order to do that, I had to go learn to code. So I spent time doing that to some degree. And I think because I came at it later, you know, people would make fun of me for saying later in life, but I felt like at like 24, I was really old doing it, that so much of learning to program was kind of, uh, there was this like mystique around it. It's very hard. And you have to be a math genius. And like so much of what I found the hard parts were just like setting up your computer to do things and then yeah. figuring out what it was doing. And those were all things that Amjad and Replit had abstracted away. So it was super compelling because like it was this place where you could just go like start trying to code and you didn't have to deal with like any of the like set up your laptop stuff that is tedious and menial and necessary. And I think at least for me, made me as a beginner feel like an idiot because I couldn't get it working. Right. And I'm just, when did you know that this was the idea that you were going to pursue relative to any other idea that you could pursue? Very late, actually. So initially, I didn't think, still skeptical, that you can build a business on top of a REPL. So REPL is an online programming environment, read, eval, print loop. It's been invented uh, by the Lisp people in the 50s or 60s as a as a radical way to program computers because back then you would like you know you'd do punch cards or you would do, you would write like large amounts of, of C program or whatever like language at the time they were using and then you would get a little bit of uh, computer time and then you run your, you compile your code and then you know something comes out of the other end like maybe you know, a few minutes later, and then your t- computer time is up, and then that's it. Like, computer time was really valuable. What the Lisp folks did, they inverted the question. They said that, actually, like, you know, eventually computer time will not be as valuable as human time. And so REPLs are event- are essentially about kind of valuing human time more than 
more than computer time. So this is where the sort of interactive programming experience started. And actually, like the shift has not been fully done yet. Like we still, in some sense, there's still this this artifact coming from the era where computer time was more valuable than human time, where we write code uh, in a way that we appease the machine more than we appease the, the human. And that, that is reflected in our tools and our uh, everything that we do. When I was studying computer science and and then found that, you know, all the problems that Christina talked about where, you know, I'd have to set up my environment and all of that stuff, I started thinking like everything should be a REPL. And then I should put a REPL in the browser and I should just like start start coding immediately. And then, you know, I open sourced that that stuff and a bunch of, uh, I was, uh, I grew up in Jordan, so that was where I started it. And then a bunch of U.S. Uh, and Silicon Valley companies started using our open source uh, projects, uh, most famously Code Academy. And I joined Code Academy uh, as the first employee and then started kind of working on this stuff. But, you know, after I left and then worked uh, at Facebook for a while, also in developer tools, I, I didn't think that, that um, you know, we'd be able to start a company on, on, on this concept. When Christina and I connected, uh, we connected over actually what what's called end-user computing. So I think after Christina kind of traversed this, this maze of like learning to code, the idea was that maybe not everyone should learn to code. Maybe we should build systems that allow people to compute without, without learning how to code. And this is how we started kind of talking to each other and potentially like wanted to start a company in this space. And at the time, like nobody was, was really doing stuff in this space. Now, now we have more, more people, you know, I think, uh, Airtable most famously kind of is now doing end user computing stuff. For, for the last, I don't know, 50 years, it's been just spreadsheets. This is how we did end user computing. Yeah. And so the question is like, how do we, how do we bring that back? Uh, in a sense, there, there was a regression in, in end user computing because if you look at, at the past, you, you had things like Apple's, um, you know, hypercard and hypertalk where it was like very, very simple English like syntax and you can like, uh, you know, you can code cards together. You can do different things together, but. Uh, and there was like a lot of experiments in the past, but nothing really stuck. The end user of the computer became, became sort of the very passive consumer. Uh, and like everything is abstracted away. When a kid gets an iPhone, that's like, the, there's no way for them to understand how to like program this thing. If they want to program this thing, they have to buy a $3,000 laptop. Then on top of that, pay Apple $100 to be able to program it. So, you know, all these ideas were kind of floating in the air around the time. We didn't know what exactly we wanted to do. The reason I, we ended up, uh, so like my, my partner and, and my wife and my co-founder, Haya, she's uh, our designer. By the time we started the company, the reason we started it is because like really it became such a sort of a maintenance burden because we're paying so much money and we're spending so much time on it. And there's like so much pull from our users and we're like, okay, maybe this could be a business. And that's, this is how it started. And, and Christina was, was the first uh, check in the company. Yeah. And one of the, I mean, the first, or that was a very easy yes in lots of ways, but one of the kind of great things is having known Amjad and like these open source projects being things he'd worked on and at various points, and maybe from the outside, it seeming like it wasn't, I wasn't convinced you actually wanted to work on it, but it like kept growing and kept getting pulled back. And so there was this bit of kind of inevitability of like the trajectory of it, right? Like this thing is going to keep going. And Amjad is like so strong at both what 
kind of product, like what what should be built here, and then technically like can go build anything. And so it's like that sort of uh, inevitability, and then the like just growth of the open source tools. You're like, oh yeah, write, write those checks all day long. <laughs> totally. And you yourself uh, went out a couple years ago and started to start a company called Vanta. Yes. So why don't you talk about what Vanta is and how you pursued that idea? Yeah, so Vanta's a little different. Um, still a bit infrastructure and developer focused. Uh, so Vanta, at its highest level, automates security and compliance. Um, so we're, we're building a suite of security tools for internet businesses. And the idea is basically twofold. One, if you use these, your business will actually be more secure. So you'll be less likely to get hacked, to lose user data, all of that. But then two, if you're using our tools, we can go through compliance audits and get compliance certifications on your behalf. So again, so the pitch and, you know, when we, when I think about like the users who are using and paying for Vanta today, you know, roughly half of them use it for what we call kind of sleeping better at night and like better peace of mind and better security. And then half use it because we can get them a SOC 2 as a specific standard, but we can get them this report that's like extraordinarily valuable to their business that they can send to their customers or prospects to say like, Hey, we had a third party come in better security. It's reasonable. You can kind of trust us with your customer data. The, the short version of kind of the story, the story of Vanta is we, my co-founder and I kind of wanted to start a security company, but spent a lot of time thinking about the security market and why in some ways there's so many security companies. Right. And in some ways, no one seems to use any of them, right? Or it's just like, how do you differentiate? And the thing we realized and very much believe, like kind of the, the dawning moment was, Security and compliance have traditionally been pretty separate things. And so, you know, if you talk to especially engineers about it, they'll be like, oh, look, you know, I do some security. I would like to do security. Uh, compliance is this like check the box exercise that's totally divorced from anything that the business makes me do. And if you talk to engineers who've gone through compliance work, they will often like not even sit down and talk to you and like run screaming from the room and be like, I never want to think about this again. And the thing we realized is, Compliance in its kind of purest form or best form is actually how you prove your security. And so uh, you, these things actually should be coupled and they should be coupled quite closely. Of it. Like, it is very valuable to be able to prove and have like an objective third party come in and say, hey, I checked and like your settings are good. And like, you know, you, you have set up AWS in a reasonable way and you will not be on, you know, the latest TechCrunch brief or breach for being a doofus. <laughs> and that's like a very valuable service for the world. And so that's kind of when we, we sort of realized it's like, oh, you know, compliance, again, in its best form, it's how you prove this thing. And you, when you prove this, you can grow your business and get more sales. And, like, people love that part of it. Uh, so you should actually kind of bring these two things together. And that's what Vanta totally. does. Because you were at USV and because you were an active angel, you saw a lot of different spaces, companies in, in, in across different categories. How did you sort of identify this is the category where you wanted to build a business relative to? Yeah, we... We started out with kind of like a very high level brainstorm and, and tried to be open to many things. But I think fundamentally, the things that ended up being important to us was something that had kind of growth in it. And I don't mean like startup hockey stick. I mean, something that would help people or businesses grow or like produce economic growth, which again, kind of compliance does. It kind of helps people grow their business. And then if you have automatically verified compliance, you're hopefully actually secure underneath it. And then something where we knew we could go sit down with and kind of be on a first name with our initial users was really important. Yeah. And that's kind of much more personal preference. So it's yeah. like, that's how I've successfully built things in the past. And when I haven't done that, I've unsuccessfully built things. And so I kind of don't know how to build products without doing that. I think tools also, man. Like, it's good yeah. watching 
watching your the evolution of your you and Eric's uh, ideas was a lot of it is about about tool, that tools. That is true. Yeah, and so there's this kind of leverage of like how do you get or you can think of leverage or like superpowers, but like who kind of are you giving superpowers to? And in Vanta's case, it's often an engineer, kind of a lead engineer who often actually wants to work on security, can't prioritize it because the business needs other things. And then in historically would like have to do this compliance exercise. And so we can kind of let them like go through that process much more easily and then also get to focus on the security work they want to focus on. Yeah. Amjad, we were talking earlier how uh, the DevTools category has been either uh, misunderstood or underrated or underestimated by, by the VC community. Yeah. Talk a little bit about that. Just before that, just an uh, interesting uh Anecdote, um, Justine and, and us, like Vanta and us, we ended up in the same YC bag. Oh, really? So, so it's interesting. That's you know, great. It all, <laughs> it all yeah. rolled, uh, not only the same YC badge, the same group in YC. Huh. So, so it was Very a lot cool. of fun doing that. In terms of uh, dev tools, like there's um, a lot of different ways to slice up dev tools. Definitely some section of dev tools have done well, and that's infrastructure. Infrastructure has done well, but in terms of programming environments that hasn't been a focus and that's something that's been traditionally really hard to raise money for uh, if i like think really hard i can only like remember one or two startups that have done dev tools and got significant funding and that's uh one of them is xamarin for example by nat friedman who ended up being acquired by microsoft and then ended up uh, you know leading the acquisition of github and now he's the ceo of github and, and maybe you could argue that that github is also like in that category and you know get github had to had to bootstrap and then eventually when Andreessen kind of put in the 100 million dollars everyone everyone in the industry said that that was stupid that they overpaid for it and and all of that stuff now of course like it happens a lot and Andreessen ends up being right in the end and mm-hmm. and, and now and now there there is like a big resurgence in in, in developer tools and now there's like uh, there's a lot of interest just because of the github exit so, I mean, you can't blame them that there hasn't been really a lot of big exits. Uh, IDEs and programming environments haven't been profitable for anyone for years and years. Maybe th- there are like one or two IDE companies that are like good businesses, but are not like really venture backed businesses. And so that's been part of the problem, but it's actually like a bigger paradox than that. Like if you really think about it, like our tools really suck. Like engineers are one of the highest being a software engineer is one of the highest leveraged thing you can do, right? You can, you can have a lot of impact in the world. You can, you can, uh, you know, create economic growth. You can, you can build amazing things. You can touch a lot of lives yet. We, we don't as a society, not just Silicon Valley, we don't really invest in the developer tools that much, right? So when I was at Facebook, I created a group to build developer tools and we only survived eight months and under constant pressure to basically like, what are you doing for the company? We're like making developers more efficient and like, well, there's, there's a problem there of the measurement problem. Like this has been talked about since the mythical man month and in, in, in the seventies. And before that, it was like, how do you measure developer productivity? There's the lines of code measure, which which turned out to be crap, right? But it's still, there's a big measurement problem, right? So they ended up shutting down my group. We achieved a lot, but, but at the end of the day, we just couldn't, couldn't keep defending our group that this is really important. 
most companies w- w- would take in a new engineer and they w- they did have to decide okay should that engineer go build tools for other engineers or should we put them on another product group and usually the incentives is put them on another product group let them build more products yet th- if you think about it rationally if they are able to make engineers like i know everyone in the company like 5% about 1% more productive it's such a but so why do they always make the decision to not build developer tools right of course there are some instances where companies do but it's really still underinvested so that's kind of a a paradox that i i've i've been thinking about and our tools our programming tools are still so primitive like this the kind of stuff that we build at replit and we think there are huge innovations i'm always you know, after we, you know, we release it and everyone is excited and, and we're excited. And I, I really think about it. It's like, you know, this should have existed years ago, right? Or like somebody prototyped it in the 70s. Yeah. You know, right? <laughs> um, and like, in some ways, the ideas aren't new, but the diffusion of them just hasn't happened. And that is, I think, a substantial innovation. But I very much remember when I was starting to program, or like, I kind of still believe this. My theory was just that every, not everyone, but most engineers have started programming when they're young. And so they just like use the things in front of them and then they get used to them. And basically everyone has Stockholm syndrome and just doesn't realize how bad the tools are because they've used them for 15 years and are like, look, when I get a new laptop, I'm going to spend four hours setting it up because that's what you do. And when you're a new person, you're like, okay, you're four hours. It's my 24. And I'm going to be crying in hour five because I just can't get it, right? And I'm going to be crying out of frustration. And so software engineering is it's in some ways are to broadly generalize, it has this weird attribute of it's full of people who believe in leverage and changing the world and they can do all these things. And then they put up with just such bad tools for themselves. So bad. Zooming out, Christine, if you put your USB hat on or your angel hat on, how do you sort of slice up the dev tools space in terms of like what are different subsectors that are potentially investable or that they're, you know, companies that can potentially be big? Yeah, well, I think I kind of do subscribe to the, I can't remember who it was, Andreessen, maybe someone with everything is either Jim Clark, everything is either bundled or rebundled or unbundled or rebundled, depending on your era. And so I think right now we're in this sort of era where things like Amjad and to some extent, you know, a notion or an air table are taking a bunch of what used to be separate companies. So like here we have an editor and we have a, you know, backend as a service, like an AWS Heroku thing. And maybe we have a collaboration tool like GitHub, right? And like sort of bundling these all into one more cohesive experience. So I think there's like a, a group of companies there and I think we'll kind of see more of them. I think there's also a lot of companies in the like, how do you get code or something from your laptop up to the internet. And I mean, like Replit is one of these, we talked a little bit about Glitch beforehand, Heroku, AWS, and Grok to some extent is this. Uh, there's kind of companies there where I think it's, again, I made a thing on my laptop. I want to show it to people. How do I do that quickly? What else? Lots of developer workflow tools. So how do I write tests faster or run tests faster or get into play code faster, like um, CI, CD stuff? What else? Pass, I guess. Uh, well, you can you can think of uh, us, Heroku, Pass. There's uh, there's Container as Container as, stuff. As service. Yeah. DigitalOcean just released uh, released one. There's Serverless. Is another category that's that's growing. Serverless uh, uh, is like more hype than usage right now. But that's you know that's the you know the, the hype model. You know, it's uh, maybe people will sour on serverless next year and then the real work starts. But right now, it's like you know, it's obvious when you look at serverless that 
the other day I, I was listening to a podcast and Guillermo Rauch of Zeit, uh, Zeit is, is another one of those uh, serverless companies. And what he said is like, serverless is to the cloud what VMs are to hardware. So now what's happening is we're treating the cloud as the hardware layer. And I, and I had a tweet that said that every computing platform, the hardware starts out to be the most valuable thing. But within time, it, uh, it shifts to the software. And the PC has been the case, you know, when IBM, uh, first came out with their PC and, uh, and, and Bill Gates, they uh, pushed them on DOS. And then he said, like, I want to maintain the rights to like actually license it to other, to others. And I'm like, ah, who cares? Like the hardware is where it's at, right? Where it ends up, you know, Microsoft being the, the most uh, valuable company in the world. And so, so, so that's, that's a really interesting uh, trend in, in DevTools as well. I was going to say end-user computing things. So this is, I think, as uh, these tools get easier and easier to use, and serverless is a good example of, I think in some ways it's great for beginners because you only you have to learn fewer things to start or to get something up and running. And so just as it becomes easier and easier to start playing with code or messing with code or writing code, you'll see more and more people doing it. Yep. What are examples of unicorns or, or, or mega companies that have emerged in the last decade or so of depth i mean docker i mean what are examples yeah i think most of, yeah yeah databases like, the data, there's a whole set of yeah. database companies yeah they will always come up uh database companies i think docker i think infrastructure companies have been like the most successful yeah. in the space i mean heroku which is like it required for, by salesforce for you know a decent amount of money but then just like the growth since then within right. salesforce like they are quite large today um and growing quickly there's also like ansible mesosphere oh, yeah, yeah. yeah yeah all these uh, all these folks like infrastructures I mean, github's a good one that's top of mind for everyone right i mean microsoft right itself has become like yeah. they have you know one of the top programming languages and one of the top ides and they're both open source and it's weird for yeah. people who remember old Microsoft. GitLab is another one. Yeah. GitLab is Talk really GitLab. interesting because GitLab, I think, figured out the strategy of like rebundling, like we talked about, where uh, everyone criticizes GitLab for building too much and like, hey, you know, the quality is not there or whatever. But eventually the, the quality will get there and, and a lot of the stuff that they built, like eventually will will fit into a cohesive story. And actually Replit is, is, is like that as well. Like, what we do is like you don't need to learn anything. You need to. You don't need to. You only need to focus on code. Code first, right? You just go into the environment, spin up the language that you prefer, and start coding. If you open a server, if you open a port in the environment, we detect that and we show you that your web output, and we actually host the container for you. If you start doing some graphics, we'll show that for you. You don't need to learn version control. Like we have this auto versioning scheme that that we need to do. We think eventually people learning in our platform, people using our platform, eventually we'll, they'll start expanding their horizon and learning all this other stuff. But for the most part, we want to be able to control the entire experience end to end. Not because we're greedy and want to do everything. It's because that's the best way to do developer experience. When I was fundraising for Replit, I had this 
the slide, the scary slide that shows you all the different things that you need to know to like build an app, right? Everything from version control to, you know, hosting, uh, repositories like GitHub to, to something like Vagrant, something like Docker, databases, of course, editors. And it's just like a huge map of thing. And so for us to take all that stuff and simplify, simplify, simplify and find something that is, that is just the absolute simplest thing you can you can use to to get started and it's it remains to be seen whether we can actually capture the entire end-to-end experience but we're actually going after that and we're trying to 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 build the entire thing out Hmm. how much do you guys think about what people are building on replit or trying to nudge them in various directions if at all they nudge us most of the time they our ambition has been driven by our users the more we see our users create stuff the more ambitious we are like when we did the web server stuff like we you know we, we'd get error reports someone would say like i opened a server on your platform and it's not serving my requests like that that's because you can't do that and then the, the first time you ignore it the second time you ignore it the tenth time it's like all right there's like actual need demand here for that and we start doing that and then you start seeing people building apps and games and things that they want to host and things they want to share and then all right i guess we can do some hosting we had our feedback forum and our feedback forum was just people giving us feedback and bugs and things like that and then we saw people creating communities and on our feedback forum like they'll report a bug and then they'll start talking talking and then they'll start sharing their programs and we're like all right i guess we we need to build a community and it's been very much you know that pull from our users there's some cases where we're nudging them to do to either use a more recent technology but but for the most part we're not that opinionated i think predicting the future when it comes to developer tools is extremely hard and you know there are a lot of companies that will you know will will say oh this language is the future or this tool is the future we don't do that i think it's it's practically impossible to do that and so we want and i think we always think that there's going to be a plurality of languages and uh, tools so we want to be able to be as open as inclusive as as diverse in terms of the tools as possible yeah one of the parts of that i think is really neat is historically it seems like investors and like practitioners have taken tools or products like Replit where you're like, look, we're going to abstract away most things and you won't need to know a version control system and you won't need to know really servers or this, that, and the other. And been like, oh, that's cute. People can make toys, mm-hmm. right? And in the derisive sense, not in the like Chris Dixon, you know, you're inventing mm-hmm. the future sense. And it's been neat to kind of watch the Replit community make kind of more real things and more toyish things, right? Yeah. But just make so much stuff that it is it feels you know like the snowball is rolling down the hill and it is you know quite large and just like the increasing sense of inevitability of people will make very real things on a platform like replit you know if we actually replit whereas it feels like even i don't know four or five six years ago this was oh you can make cute toys or oh you could do you could learn things and it's like you know beginners but then they're gonna jump off to yeah. real development at some yeah, point maybe that's part of the paradox that, that we were talking about Part of why why is it that our tool is so primitive? Maybe because there's a bottleneck where you attempt to build this like more advanced thing, and the, the kind of people that you attract are the kids and the hobbyists, 
And then most people will get, most companies will get dismayed by that, right? It's like, I don't want all these hobbyists. I was actually talking to like one successful, really successful company and they were so mad that what they built was appealing to hobbyists and they just, they wanted professional developers, right? And, but if you look at the history of computing, it's like mostly been hobbyists that's driven computing. Like the Mac was a hobbyist oh, machine. Club, yeah. right? And then the, uh, you know, before, what was it? The VisiCalc? Like there was no real professional. Like accountant or, yeah, bookkeeping tools. software. Yeah. Yeah. For, for the Mac. And the Mac has been mostly games, education, things like that. So I think there's, there's this, this perception of if you're building these, these tools that make creation easier, and then you get the, the hobbyist first, then, and that's, by the way, that's uh, something that's, um, criticism that's been leveled at Heroku. And mm-hmm. it was like, oh, it's, it's just a hobbyist thing. And look, when you're, if you're, if you build something on it and it takes off, you're definitely going to move off, you right. know? And... Right. Exactly. Still on Heroku. Yeah. yeah. Christina, could you unpack the Jim Clark statement about bundling and unbundling a bit, the philosophy behind it? Because some entrepreneurs listening may be unfamiliar with that, but perhaps could use that framework to help think of new ideas and opportunities. Yeah. So, so as, as my understanding of it, in some ways, fundamentally, they're like, I think of it as human needs and desires don't actually change that often, right? Um, but there's different ways to depend, to go sort of fill those needs and new technology can impact that. And then like changes in distrib- in the market broadly or distribution or like how you get your product out to people can change that. And so probably in the Jim Clark era, an example of this would be, right, like, how do you get on the internet? And this was like all kind of brand new. So we were like, okay, you have your dial-up line, you eventually have a, you have a, you know, telnet thing. And okay, now we have a web browser thing. But it was all these separate pieces. And you had to like, figure out, dial in separately, open your web browser, figure out where your web browser is going, do all this stuff. And the people who did it, like, got this great experience, but it was kind of hard. You had to do six things. And then AOL came along and was like, okay, we're just gonna make the six things one, right? And you like hit the AOL button and then some sounds, weird sounds happen. And then you're opened onto, you know, AOL homepage where you can go click, you know, news or sports or chat or whatever you want. And so in that sense, kind of AOL like bundled all the things you need to get on the internet into like kind sort of one button click and was like quite successful doing that until they weren't. And other folks again came along and split out. Okay. How do you get on the internet? How do you, how do you find things? How do you buy things? Whatever. A more recent example. I mean, Replit is an example of this or maybe Heroku. And so I think they took the pieces of AWS, right? If you want to, you know, launch your website with AWS, you need to figure out your servers. Maybe you need to figure out your database. If you have like document storage, you have to figure that out. Load balancing, like where does the traffic, how does it go split across your servers? You have to figure all this stuff out. And then the Heroku folks came along and were like, look, that's a lot of decisions. And, you know, if you're a strong developer, you like this. It's kind of fun. But fundamentally, that's pretty constricted. And then there's lots of folks who probably want to get websites in and don't want to think about balancing traffic across different servers and how large are the servers and all this. So we're going to sort of make a button click deploy your application. So you have your thing on your, you have your application on your laptop. Now you have it on, you push a button. Now it's on Heroku. Now it's on the internet. And so they kind of bundled the like 10, 15 things you had to do in AWS into that one button click. 
And it's in some ways a much better user experience, or it's a much better user experience for many use cases. But then you can also imagine there's people who want to go, you know, change some of the dials and knobs. And Heroku literally over time has opened up some of that. But sometimes you want the dials and knobs, you have to go back to the kind of unbundled experience where you have all of the dials and knobs and you can go turn the the ones you want to. Yeah. Alex Danko has this like four part mega series on how undescribed just value keeps moving across this, like on different elements of the stack. And it's sort of like, I don't, I'm not going to do justice to it, but it's a. Uh... Actually marketplaces yeah, are kind of reasonable, right? So if you think about uh, in some ways, the first wave of, let's say, healthcare marketplaces uh, 10 years ago on the internet, you know, something like care.com, where like a healthcare provider could like write their profile and then you could go search for them and interview them and call up the ones and then like decide, you know, which healthcare professional you want for your family and pay them and this whole thing. And like it worked. My care.com is, is to this day a business. But in some ways, it was a lot of work. Uh, and so then you have things like Honor, where you kind of just go to the website and say, click a button and be like, I would like a you know competent elder care professional for my family and I will pay them this amount. And it, it just sort of happens. And so there is less customization, kind of specialization in some way, but it's it's a lot easier to. Yeah. When did we move to this stage where we wanted all of our companies to be like fully vertically integrated? Mm. I mean, I remember when I was like just joining USC, this was 2010, and this was the factor lean startup uh fred wilson ben horowitz debate this is like the week before i joined usv i was like oh boy what am i walking into <laughs> holy wars um yeah. but that seemed to be you know i think maybe i don't know maybe some amount of like in in kind of the first internet boom like everything was almost definitionally like a fat startup because you like there was no aws like your servers were in your closet and you had yeah. to deal with your servers and whatever you wanted you had to deal with and that turned out that was expensive and hard, right? And so many of those companies kind of blew up for one or both of those reasons. And then from that, we kind of learned the like, what is now the lean startup methodology and like the Eric Reese, Steve Blank kind of world. And that kind of solved a bunch of problems. But again, yeah, I think you run into this. You can't control, like as an entrepreneur or product designer, you cannot control the user experience if you're fundamentally giving parts of it away to other companies. And so then you get the like, I don't know, seesaw back to, well, I want to control the pieces. And so that means I have to fundamentally do them. And I think it is more of like a seesaw kind of back and forth, but it does feel like the last few years have been more and more can technology entrepreneurs kind of full stack different industries so that they can control an experience um, and create the better experience that they, they imagine. At USV, did you guys do any dev tools companies? And GitHub or Hoku or any of these? Um, to, so Albert Banger was the partner who did most of these. And he invested in Twilio early, Series A. Mongo uh, was Tengen, I think also A. They've done some things since. Code Climate, for example, uh, which since is, is post-2012. So I'm, I'm quite out of date. But I think Sif Science when I was yeah. there. Sif so Science Security? Machine Learning generally. Payments Fraud is like the primary application. Talk a little bit about how startups versus incumbents have played within the depth of space in the last like decade or so? Yeah. I mean, the, the biggest, most obvious thing that's happening is that what we talked about with cloud provider being the hardware and they're leaving so much space for software players. It's, it's, it's amazing. Like, like uh, we're going to see more companies, I think exist in this software layer. They, they try to catch up, right? They, it's not like they, 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 you know, stand with their, you know, twiddling their thumbs. They actually try to build and compete within, within that layer. But most of the discovery that's happening between, between the public clouds and the 
programmer is happening in the startup uh, layer. So, for example, uh, my friends at uh, Netlify kind of saw early on how static sites are coming back and how the advancements in JavaScript and APIs have created a new way of making applications. So they call it the Jamstack, JavaScript APIs, and I forgot what's the other one. But uh, basically, it's like you can build an end-to-end application without actually touching any server code. Uh, and then they're now they're marrying that with serverless so that even if you needed that server code, you can like put it in a function somewhere and run it on one of the providers or their provider. And so, you know, that, that sort of exploration is, is happening in the, in the startup scene. So it's, it's really exciting time. Yeah. Yeah. I'm trying to think of why, at least in my head historically or in the, or the recent history, call it last like 10, 15, 20 years, incumbents have not made that much successful or a large developer tooling. And I think some of its software development is, I don't know if it's quite gone from like cost center to profit center in, in most companies, but historically like, and people didn't make nice things for, for software developers, right? Like there weren't very many of them. They didn't have purchasing power, kind of why, what market is there to sell to? It's like you can sell them a software application to a business problem, but then you're actually talking to the business owner. That's a very good point. Like I think CTOs like weren't really in, in that much power for the like for, for yeah. the most part, right? Now now they're coming into power. Even at traditional companies, like CTOs like are being sort of listened right. to and, and they're making more of the decisions. And why is that? Um, because they know that software is eating the world, I think. I think they understand that now. And there was this stat that I read recently that software engineering is growing more in non-tech company companies than in tech companies. And so what's that uh, part about every, every company is a software company now? So I think all of that contributed to the idea that, hey, let's actually listen to what our CTO says, what our CTO is playing with on the weekend. And now that 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 created a new market for you know what's called B two D right business to to develop. Yeah, I think there have been I mean startups and now startups and, and large companies that have grown on the backs of selling to development teams. Right, Twilio's Ask Your Developer campaign, which is you know seems a little silly in San Francisco, but it, like very much as there is a bottoms up land and expand go to market for developer tools selling to or selling to being accessible for prototypes in much larger companies because yeah. um, one team can like try something out and look if it works right. they they might actually be able to buy it which i think is just not part of anyone's market map or go to market model 15 right. years ago to contrast if we were going to start a fund that was focused on social networks or even maybe consumer social broadly today would not be the best time to go do that would it be a much better time relative to five years ago or 10 years ago to start a fund focusing on dev tools? How would this time in history or looking forward? It's interesting because uh, to, to think about these things, because, you know, famously, Google started at the worst time to, to start a search engine. Facebook probably started at the worst time to start a, a social network. So timing these things is is incredibly hard. You might say that there's like more options uh, for developer tools now and more people are interested in building them and maybe that's why starting a fund is is good but if your goal is to find the the unicorn the the big player the black swan black swan by definition uh is is uh is hard to time yeah 
So let's pretend for thought experiment that we were starting a fund focusing on dev tools and we were issue, we were doing all the standard fund things. We we're picking a name <laughs> for the name. We were uh, putting our request for startups on our, on our homepage, telling people what our thesis is. How would, how would we think about what would our approach be in terms of like where we think the emerging unicorns will, will come in the next few years and what we think people should be working on or spending more time on? The way I thought about this and starting Vanta was if you want to sell to businesses, if you're a B2B company or an enterprise company, you need to solve a business problem. Um, and so what business problems are there that are sort of untouched with software? And again, the kind of security compliance duality is, is one of the ones we came up, but I think there's lots of those. You know, I think that or one of the reasons I like that is it dovetails into kind of the rise of a developer within an organization in terms of purchasing power, political power, of whatever, of, of look, we have this organizational problem and this business need. The development team has to solve it. How can we help them solve that? But also, I mean, I think the, the general, I think there's a general strain of frontier tech for developer tools doesn't look as far out there and sci-fi as frontier tech, tech writ large. But kind of to Amjad's point, this is the like, what are people doing on the weekends? What are the youngest kind of software engineers playing with? What does in fact look like a toy that has no applicable business use case, but in the, you know, 0.5% chance it takes off does in fact change everyone else's workflows from here on out. And so there's kind of a like frontier piece yeah. of dev tools. Any thoughts on what that is today? Like what are, what are people doing on the weekends? It might not be obvious to everyone, but we've seen a lot of activity in the how do you apply machine learning to programming? And uh, that's something that we're playing with at Replit. Part of our mission is to like reduce that time to, to get started, right? Like what's, what's the time to code, right? Some of that is if you're stuck on you know, at Code Academy, we saw a lot of people drop off because they put a semicolon in the in the wrong place, right? And so, imagine if there is sort of a something to give you more intelligent errors. This is what Kite is trying to do, right? Kite is is trying to do that. There's a project by an intern at at, at OpenAI called Tab Nine, which is fascinating to me, much more fascinating than Kite. And there's a new YC company called uh, I think this batch called Windsor. Yeah, there's quite a bit of activity in this uh, in this like AI assisted uh, coding space, and, and I think that's definitely one of the uh, one of the frontiers. Yeah, is there anything you would add to either that great thesis or broadly what what's going to exist that doesn't exist today? Like, what's a big company that will emerge in the next few years that is not even on people's radar today? Or people still dismiss our company, Replit, as as sort of toyish and and not very. Uh, you know, why aren't you selling to enterprise yet? You know, that's a, that's a question that, that I get every, every day when we we're fundraising. Everyone was like, you know, yes, you have all these hobbyists and kids using your platform, but you know, where's, where's the enterprise developers? Where's that? And I think the way we're building our platform is, is very interesting in that it could be really big or it could be nothing in a sense. It could just remain a toy or it could become. The way people build applications in the future. Uh, Mark Andreessen wrote this famous post, or used to be famous, I guess, levels of platforms. So you have like level one platform, level two platform, level three. Level one is an API, right? Say, uh, Twilio. Oh, maybe Twilio added serverless recently. So, but, but it, let's say Twilio like two years ago, right? It, 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 you, you just hit an API, right? Level two is you have an SDK and you also maybe embed the, 
the app in your in your platform, say Facebook games, right? So that was like a level two platform. Level three platform is SDK API and running running the user's code inside your platform. So basically, you, you you what we said were like the user just has to write the code and they don't have to worry about running the code. They don't have to worry about maintaining the resources. They don't have to worry about anything that goes on there. So we already do this part. Now you can imagine like what happens if we made it so that they can depend on each other's work. They can hit each other's APIs. What if we made it so that there's a social network aspect to it and we're work- working on all these different parts right now actually our users are implementing a lot of these features so the other day i saw a project called load from repl so you're you're in repl and you're writing code you can load someone else's code into your into your application and you can use any project in the ecosystem as a dependency so i think what we're building has this like very a potential of, of, you know, being something like totally new and weird and haven't been explored before. So that's, that's what we're aiming for. Uh, in terms of like, if, if I were to like kind of place more traditional bets, uh, I definitely very bullish on, uh, serverless and, and Netlify is, is, is really awesome what they're doing. Zite is pretty cool. And then um, you have companies like Dev2 is a social network for yeah. for, for programmers. And this I just is- didn't see how that gets to be a venture company, but I'm curious, what's the bullish case on that? What's the defining feature of GitHub? Is it is it text storage? It's, it's a social network. So Dev2 is a social network without that without the text storage part, right? Right, and not not to denigrate GitHub, but ultimately, yeah. you know, you're storing text with revisions, right? That, that's so Git. How do you capture value from that? Or do you just sell <laughs> to someone bigger? That, that, that's a good point. But the, the question is like how much optionality they have and which direction to go at some point, right? Yeah. So I think they, they do have a lot of optionality in terms of like, there's like so many directions to go once you have the user base and once you have the network and network effects and, and things yeah. like that. Yeah. The thing I would love to invest in is more on the end user computing front. And so fundamentally to me, that's how do you make it easier to let individuals give themselves superpowers, right? And Excel is, you know, again, I think the canonical example here of of software that has succeeded in doing that. And so it doesn't have to be, can I write full programs or full web apps or iOS applications or whatever? Can be very, I had to send 17 emails and I wrote myself a way to do that automatically. But I think that's kind of good for, for two reasons. One of just this kind of software and writing software is so powerful to opening that up to more people. I think both a moral good and kind of a public good. And then more people will make more interesting things available to more other people. And two, I think actually just funding that kind of and being explicit about wanting to fund a bunch of software like that will in fact get more software like that created. And so that means like more software that lets individuals kind of tweak it or change it. And again, things like Notion or Airtable are more or less software engineering examples of this. And I don't think it's inevitable that software at all inevitable that software like, you know, lets people customize it. Um, kind of the last 20 years suggest it's not inevitable. And so just being very explicit about like, this is a thing in the world, we would like to see more of it, please go work on it, we'll support you if you do. I think actually, it's a d- decent chance of just like, getting more of it created. Yeah. If you were to imagine a future where that that happens and becomes somewhat of a norm, what, what would that look like? 
Well, I mean, I think like spreadsheets are just kind of the best example here that we have historically where we have a bunch of people who are able to, again, kind of do things that make their lives easier in one way or another, like sort of write simple, what is simple software and can get more done. And so again, from a like productivity standpoint or economic growth or in some ways like individual happiness, like I don't have to count up and fewer, I have to count up fewer things and like I don't have to worry as much if they match because they match. Computer will take care of that. I think more like that. Yeah, I think also like if we sort of democratize like app building, even if it's small apps and things like that, you have this effect where now communities can build their own stuff, right? So for example, right now what's happening is like Silicon Valley creates this application and then we figure out how to globalize it after it works in the US, right? But not everything can be globalized. There are some things that are unique to, to a certain geographic areas, certain culture. And we're seeing that in Uber, actually. The reason Uber did not like grow like Facebook and became like a worldwide thing, there, there are a lot, there might be a lot of reasons, but my, my, my guess is, is that culture is a big part of it. So for example, where I'm from, Jordan, Kareem just totally sort of destroyed Uber. And the reason it is they understand the culture. They understand the 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 problems there. They understand that people like cash cash and delivery. They understand that people there's certain like codes of respect, you know, between people and the and the driver. There's certain norms. There's a certain way people act and interact. And I think if we go to a world where people are able to create their own applications, it it would make it so it might not be the best for Silicon Valley. Uh, but it, it would be the best for the world where we're going to see a lot of independent software vendors. We're going to see a lot of economic growth, uh, all over the world. Um, and, you know, things like what Stripe is doing, uh, with Atlas and, and, and the way that they kind of remove the, the barrier by making payment easier is a big part of that. So a lot of the companies that are really excited about are the companies that are removing the barrier for people to start creating their own right. things with, with technology. Why don't you think any of the, like, make your own Android or iOS application sandboxy companies worked, right? The ones where you're, like, make an application with no code? Because mm. then fundamentally, right, like, right, kind of all the, the high-level things seem to line up where you're like, yes, people want to make applications. Yes, people don't want to go download Xcode or, like, learn Objective-C or, or whatever, right? And, they're, and then, yes, entrepreneurs are making these projects, but, like, none of them really seem to. I'm not, I'm not very bullish on no-code environments. I think low-code environments are, are a little bit better. And I think even environments that are still code-centric but are, but abstract away a lot of things. So in the, in the mobile space, you have Expo, for example, Expo took technology we built at, at, at Facebook, React Native, and just made the entire DevOps experience end-to-end really, really, really good. And I think they're doing, uh, doing well. But, but yeah, it's, it's a good question. Like, why, why hadn't we seen things like App Inventor or things like that, like, you know, become, become something that people all over the world are using? Yeah, I mean, I think it's kind of easy to say, oh, the product's not good enough, or like, oh, you can't customize, you can't customize in the right way. But it it does sort of suggest, so like, well, what what is the like product unlock thing here, or is there not one, and this is just a dead end idea? That's a good question. And there, I mean, there was a bunch of people saying, and maybe they're still saying that like coding is a new literacy, and everyone will will know how to code. Is that overstated, or will that be overstated in your view? And will just be more computing. 
but without having to know how to go. Yeah, that's the I like that world much better. The there will be more computing where people can like make and use software very adroitly. But like, look, should everyone have to learn what a like static classes and you know pick your language like i hope not (laughs) they're just like more interesting things to think about i think yeah and i I think uh i think computing should be on the same level as uh, math or physics in school right and then there's the opportunity question is that uh and this is something we 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 really interested in is that first of all are you exposed to that right so like like let's say 12 year old kid that doesn't have a computer at home are they will they eventually be exposed to some kind of programming environment because if they are and if they are interested and maybe have the talent for it then they they should pursue it right so there's the sort of equality of opportunity question there and i think we should definitely work on that and then there's the understanding of it like we understand the world around us in terms of physics in terms of math in terms of the subjects we learn in school, then yes, definitely people should understand how computers work so that, uh, you know, people should understand that, you know, the social media applications are manipulating you to like check them more often, right? Like, you know, people should understand that there are like programmers behind that and scientists that are trying to get you to do things. And, and so, yes, people should understand that people should expose so that if they have the opportunity, they, they can pursue it. But I don't think we should force people to to code. And I don't see a future where, you know, everyone in the world codes. Like, what's what's the point of that? When the, we, we haven't covered super deeply uh, the coding education companies. There's a sort of wave of, you know, Code Academy, obviously, the first employee there. But Treehouse, I mean, there's a bunch of them. What's happened to them? I guess Code Academy is, is the biggest one? Yeah, Code Academy is doing really well. Uh, they're focused on building the business now. I think we hear less about them because... They're less focused on on user acquisition, right? Uh, and more focused on on the on the. And ha- has that space been more or less fought over? There's not going to be like a next wave of. So MOOCs, you know, have gone through the hype cycle where they there was like the you know the height of expectation, right? And now they they're crashing. So MOOCs always had like low, low retention rates. People put in a lot more hopes in MOOCs than it actually is. Like I actually believe in that hype cycle model. It's actually very, very predictive. Most of the good work that happens happens in low hype periods. Uh, so, for example, like crypto, we're probably going to see more crypto applications this year than we saw uh, in 2018 because the real serious people will get down to work or are already working and they don't have the distractions around them to do that. So I think MOOCs will eventually become more and more of a thing. Different models are, are, are propping up like Lambda School. This is like one of the, one of the biggest ones now where it's, it's really cool. The incentive structures that they, that they built. So it's still a big, big area, still an area where it could create a lot of economic growth, a lot of opportunity for people. It's like, what the best of capitalism could give us in terms of like propping people up in terms of people kind of, you know, lifting themselves out of poverty and, and things like that. So this area is really, really important, really cool. The hype is down. Uh, and I think ultimately that's a good thing. Yeah. How do you know when something is in the trough of sorrow right before it's going to rise up versus something that just fails? Clean tech, maybe. I'm not that familiar with clean tech, but to me, it seems easy to, to find out. So like, you look on uh, Twitter and Hacker News and all the places and you see what's being claimed, right? And then you go actually 
install, like you go look at, um, you know, you get a Bitcoin node or Ethereum node or what, what have you and start playing with it, you'll immediately find the delta between the expectation and the, uh, and the thing. So actually, like if you're a VC, I think the most important thing for you to be a practitioner and play around with things on the weekends, like maybe that's the best way for you to actually understand where are we in the hype cycle. Yeah, I, th- I think that's that's probably it. Like I usually just like go and like take a weekend and 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 go try to build something with something that's like very overly hyped. Like even serverless is, is as much as I'm bullish on it, and I'd say Replit is a serverless IDE. Like it, the workflow sucks. The ergonomics are not there. The support is not there. But that, that, that creates a lot of opportunity. A lot of people should be building tools for serverless right now. But it's obvious that the hype is, is high. Cool. Guys, thanks for coming on. This has been a great podcast. Where can people learn more about Vanta and, and Replit and any plugs or things that people should stay tuned for? Uh, Replit is repl.it. Uh, my Twitter handle is amasad, A-M-A-S-A-D. I tweet a lot about what all the people are building with Replit. It's a lot of inspiration there. It's super me. fun to follow. Yeah. <laughs> so Vanta, uh, we're at vanta.com, V-A-N-T-A. We don't have that much publicly online, but a lot behind the scenes. So if you email us, I'd love to talk. Awesome. Cool. Thank you for coming on the podcast. If you're an early stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you. Please hit us up at villageglobal.vc slash network catalyst.